Good afternoon. It's good to see everyone, and we're thankful for everyone's presence and all those that are able to be back with us for our evening worship service. This morning, we had a lesson. We considered um, a notable miracle that we all probably know very well from the end of Mark chapter 4, where after a day of teaching in parables, Jesus had gone across the Sea of Galilee or told his disciples, let's go across the sea. And they started across and that windstorm arose and uh, Jesus was asleep in the stern of the boat. And we talked about all of that miracle and Jesus being awoken by the disciples and he rose and rebuked that windstorm. And he said to the sea, peace be still. And of course, the wind ceased and the sea was calm and the disciples lives were saved. But we noticed there at the end. Mark chapter 4 and that story of that miracle ends not perhaps on the high note that you would assume for men whose lives had just been saved, but with the disciples filled with fear and with an important question in their hearts and on their tongues. Mark chapter 4 verse 41 says, They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, the rest of, or Mark chapter 5 answers that question. We talked about the answer of that question this morning, and I believe that the disciples had some understanding or idea when the Old Testament spoke about someone rebuking the waters and having that type of power to speak and control and command nature. That was an attribute of God. And that's part of what scared these. I'm sure that's what scared these men to recognize that Jesus, who they had taken along in the boat just as he was, as Mark says, who thought that they knew him, who thought they were following the Messiah that they'd been anticipating, recognized that they are feet from God made flesh. Now that's a hard thing to probably come to grips with. And so they're terrified at this prospect. They're terrified realizing that Jesus is much more than even they thought that he might be. And they begin to ask each other this question, who then is this well the remaining the next several hours are going to be an incredible lesson for the disciples and mark chapter 5 records three different stories three miracles of jesus that in conjunction with the miracle of jesus calming the sea are going to show beyond the shadow of a doubt who jesus is it's going to answer this question of who then is this and while these are only a sprinkling of all of the miracles that Jesus performed in his three years in their presence, these four miracles, the one in Mark 4 and the three in Mark 5, really can sum up in many ways all of his miracles and all of his power and answer definitively who he is and why that matters. And so I'm going to try and go through Mark chapter 5. Now, I've given lessons on all three of these in individual miracles before, so I'm not going to be able to go into them in detail. I do want to try and read the entirety of the chapter. We'll read each story one at a time, but we'll have to keep our remarks fairly high level. But I want you, as we read through the text, and as I make some comments, a couple of things is I want you to try and think about the disciples. One of the things that's interesting is after this question in Mark 4.41, where they say, who then is this? We don't hear the disciples saying anything throughout the next chapter except for one time when the woman with the flow of blood touches Jesus and he says, who touched me? We're told that the disciples said, uh, Lord, everybody's touching you or how can you ask this question? That's the only thing. In all of these three incredible miracles, the disciples, it's almost like you get this picture that they're just following around in kind of a stunned silence. 
And I think that's fitting. I think that's probably what anybody as close to Jesus as they were would be, especially having just witnessed what they did on the Sea of Galilee. So I want you, as we go through these stories, much of the focus is going to be on Jesus and some of these other individuals. But I want you to try and think about these stories from the perspective of the disciples and what they were seeing, and what they were learning. And also, I want you to think about something else. The question that Jesus asked in Mark chapter 4, he asked them in verse 40, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Consider those ideas of faith and fear. And see if you can find those, and we'll bring those out a little bit, in the stories that we read from Mark chapter 5. Let's go ahead and start. So right after Mark chapter 4 and the calming of the sea, chapter 5 begins, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often bound, been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send out, not not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is another incredible story that we read in Mark chapter 5. Matthew tells us about this account also. And in Matthew's account, it's not a contradiction. He just gives us another detail. There are actually two of these men uh, that Matthew tells us about. But Mark specifically focuses on this one. And I don't know exactly why Mark focuses on this one. I tend to believe it's because of this man's request at the end. I wonder if this was, there was one man who made that request to go with Jesus and had this further dialogue and discussion with Jesus. But we aren't sure. We're not told all the details. Matthew's account is very truncated. Uh, but anyway, Jesus comes to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So he has left Capernaum. And think of uh, Capernaum is up on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he has crossed over. And they've come through the storm through the night. And they've come to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Now it's very possible. In fact, I think likely that where Jesus lands, where Jesus and the disciples land, is actually probably Gentile country. You'll notice that there's a herd of 2,000 pigs. Well, those are unclean animals. And so either you've got Jews that have just completely rejected the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament, which that doesn't seem likely, or you've got an area that's actually predominantly 
Gentile. And I think that's very likely what we have here. So Jesus arrives on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And immediately the disciples are still reeling. They're still wondering and thinking about in their mind the events that have just transpired within the last few hours of Jesus calming the seas. That's not something you just get over and start going about the rest of your day. That's still on their minds. And as soon as they step off the boat, they're met with another scene that's just mind-boggling. Now there's been a man, two men, but one that Mark focuses on here, who for some time has been plagued by being filled with a demon and an unclean spirit. In fact, not just any unclean spirit. This man hasn't had just a demon in him, but apparently many. Because when Jesus, as we read later, asks the unclean spirit, what is your name? The reply is, my name is Legion, for we are many. I don't believe that demon possession is still allowed to happen. I believe God allowed it for a certain period of time around the time of Jesus' life and the life of the apostles that came after him to show his power over the, over the kingdom of Satan, to show that Jesus had come to bind and to conquer and to defeat. And so for a period of time, Satan's minions and these demons, these unclean spirits were allowed to go about in some way and to inhabit people. And I don't know all of the way that that happened. We know that more than one could inhabit a person. There's stories in the book of Acts of those who had had multiple demons inhabit them at the same time. I don't know how that can happen, but it can somehow. Now you can read other stories where even just one demon could make life miserable for a person, could give a person some incredible strength or some strange abilities, but could make life terrible. So this poor man has been having a legion. Now, I don't know if that literally means thousands and thousands as a Roman legion was, or if it just means there is a great multitude of evil, unclean spirits in this man. But for some time, this man has been suffering from the torment of these evil spirits. We're told a little bit about the man. We're told that he lived in the tombs. Now, I'm sure that all of us here have walked among a graveyard from time to time. We've probably gone to a graveyard where perhaps we had loved ones buried and we like to go and pay our respects. Perhaps you're one of those that finds graveyards a bit peaceful as long as it's the right time of day and the nice weather. You know, it's kind of neat to stroll through, especially if you find an old graveyard where there's some neat tombstones and a lot of history perhaps. And it's, it is kind of peaceful and it's pretty quiet in a graveyard to walk around and enjoy that scene. But would you want to live in a graveyard? Well, of course not. It makes no sense. Why doesn't it make sense? Because the living don't live with the dead. And that's what a graveyard is, is it's filled with dead people. And so the living may visit there from time to time, but they don't live there. But that's where this man has been relegated to. The only place fit for this man to inhabit is the tomb. The graveyard of his place. He can't be around people. We're not sure exactly what he did. But apparently the man was probably prone to some violence. He had incredible. What you might call superhuman strength. The townspeople from the closest town. Had apparently multiple times tried to go up. And shackle this man. And you can imagine why. He's probably become somewhat of a nuisance. Like I just said. You 
probably would want to go visit the tombs of your loved ones and visit from time to time, but you couldn't because there's this man there who is naked, we're told. He has no clothes on. He's screaming. He's crying out. He's likely to attack you and assault you. And so they want to get rid of this nuisance. They want to control him, maybe even for his own benefit and welfare. They're trying to help him. And so they, you can just imagine them getting the strongest men of the village and going up there with chains and with ropes and imagine the fight and the tussle that they would have and the broken bones and the gashes that would come out of it. And finally they would get chains and ropes wrapped around this man and they thought they had him and just like a superhero or like Samson, he would just burst those chains asunder and go flying back up the hill to the tombs, making life miserable for the people. But as he was there in the tombs, it says that night and day, he was crying out, always crying out and cutting himself with stones. In this picture, I think we see a very apt description of exactly what Satan thinks of you and thinks of me and what he would love to do to us. He would love nothing more than to cause pain and misery eternally if he has his will on those who have been created in the image of God. There is some sick perverse joy that Satan and these unclean spirits get out of making this man's life literally a living hell. I don't use that phrase lightly the way people do. That is what they are turning this man's life into day in and day out. Hour after hour, this man is at the mercy of the torment of unclean spirits. And no one's able to offer him any help. And then one day, Jesus sails up in a boat. And as soon as Jesus gets off that, that craft, this man is there to meet him. Somehow this man, with his unclean spirits inhabiting him, have been able to sense the presence of the master approaching. And while this man as a human may not know who it was coming in that boat... Those unclean spirits absolutely did. They knew who it was that was getting ready to step off. And they knew that they were in trouble. They knew who he was. They knew his power. They knew what he could do to them. And they knew there was not a chance to fight. And they knew there was not a chance to run. They knew the only chance they had was to go and prostrate themselves before the master. And beg for any form of mercy. That he might be willing to grant them. And that's exactly what this man does. He runs to Jesus. He falls down. And the spirits begin crawling out. And listen to this verse 7. They say. What have you to do with me Jesus. Son of the most high God. That's an important phrase. Because what is that? That's the answer. To the question the disciples had just been asking the night before. What were the disciples asking? They were saying. Who then is this? Now. Where do you think they're going to get that answer from? You would think that they may get the answer from any number of places. They get their answer from a legion of demons. Who cry out, you are Jesus, son of the most high God. That is a messianic title. But it is not just a messianic title. It is a confession of deity. Now they are not confessing in the way that would be a confession of loyalty. A saving confession that shows their faith. They are not going to do that. They are simply acknowledging exactly who Jesus is. He is the son of the most high God. He is God in the flesh. He is the creator of all. He is the king of kings. That's who the disciples are walking with. That's who they were with in the boat last night. That's who they've been following. They've been following a man who apparently cannot only calm the sea with a word, but who a literal army of demons trembles before. 
Now, again, you may still think that's odd that they were afraid after they've known Jesus. They've been with Jesus for some time. He saved their lives. I would suggest this. If a legion of demons trembles in the very presence of Jesus, it should probably invoke some reverential awe in we humans as well. Again, people, and Jesus loves us and wants a relationship with us, but sometimes people get so casual and so light with who Jesus is Speaking of him as just a buddy, just someone that's kind of like their get out of jail free card. And there's no reverence, there's no awe, there's no fear. There should be a little bit of fear. The right type of fear, the respectful fear, an obedient fear, understanding exactly who he is. This legion of demons absolutely knew who they were before. And so they begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, I don't know where they thought Jesus might send them or what he might send them to. There's other places that record demons being afraid of being sent back to the abyss or to the pit before the appointed time. Jesus had the ability to command them to go uh, to that place. But instead they begged Jesus and asked to be sent to the pigs. Now, I've heard a lot of explanations. I'm not going to get into them. I've read different ones. I don't know why they wanted to go into the pigs. I don't know if they were actually going to try and cause problems for Jesus. I don't know if they just thought that was the closest thing that they could go to. I don't know why they asked this. But for some reason, they asked Jesus to go to these pigs. And Jesus does something really strange. Jesus gives them permission. Jesus let the demons do what they wanted to do. That's kind of a mind-boggling idea. That he let them have what they want. Now, by the way, you might remember this. Just because you get what you want doesn't mean you get what you need. Sometimes God even lets demons have their way. And Jesus did here. But he gives them permission, and so they go and they enter the pigs. And there's about 2,000 of these pigs. Now, as they enter these pigs... Whether this is purposeful on the demon's part, or whether it's the pig's reaction to being inhabited by unclean spirits, the Bible's silent about. We don't know what, why the pigs do this. But when they're inhabited by these demons, a stampede ensues, and these pigs run, and they run right off the hillside, they run right off the cliff, and they run and drown right there in the Sea of Galilee. Now, there's some herdsmen that have been watching all of this. And... This is a little bit of speculation, but I kind of think of it like this. These are probably Gentiles. And you can imagine these herdsmen have been standing here, and they've seen this boat coming, and they know it's coming from the west side of Galilee. And they can probably tell, if they, as they can see Jesus getting out of the boat and his disciples by their dress, they can probably tell, here's some of these Jews from over on the east side of, of the lake. And they probably don't like Jews. The Jews certainly don't like them. And as they're watching this, uh, this boat approach and Jesus and the disciples get off, they see this man start running down from the opposite hillside. And he's running out of the tombs. And they know who this is. They know exactly who this man is. They've probably had to keep an eye out for him before. Maybe they've been involved in those raids to go and try and shackle him before and had some bruises to tell about it. And they see this man running down with his companion that Matthew tells us. And you can just think of them kind of sitting back and thinking, we're about to get a show. We're going to get to see these Jews learn a little bit of a lesson for coming over here to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And they watch this man come and come and come. And then he gets there and they see him fall down right at the feet of Jesus. You imagine that probably got their attention. 
They've never seen this before. This man who can beat up an entire group of people and burst chains asunder is groveling at the feet of this man who just arrived from the other side of Galilee, Sea of Galilee. And they're too far away to hear, but they're watching and they can tell that this man is talking to this demon-possessed individual. And then all of a sudden, they start hearing this rustle behind them. And they look back and they see their, stand, their pigs, their herd of swine is getting kicked up into a frenzy. And they do their best to try and control them, but there's nothing they can do. And within moments, there's a stampede and these pigs are heading off. And they watch all of their pigs just go right over the cliff and into the, dead, into the Red or the Sea of Galilee and drown. And what do these men do? They hightail it back to town. To tell the others what happened. Now. First several times when I was a kid and heard this. Or I read this. I often thought they must have been angry. They just lost a lot of money. They lost a lot of income. Because all their pigs are dead and gone. The Bible never says anything about them being angry. I think they're afraid. And we're going to see that in just a moment. But they run back and they tell the town. What they've witnessed. They've seen this demon possessed man talking to these strangers. And then he, he didn't beat them. He, he prostrated himself before him. And then all of a sudden the pigs got uh, frenzied up. And they ran and they drowned themselves in the sea. And so all the town comes out. To see what happens. And when they get there. It says they saw the man who had been demon possessed. And who had had the legion. And notice what they see. They see him sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And here's another one of these ironic points of this story. This is such a joyous day. This man has been terrorizing the people around him. For all we know, this man has a family, a wife, and children who they can't see their dad, they can't see their husband because he would probably hurt them. And this man's better. He can have a conversation. He's not showing his shame by running around naked. He's clothed. He's not crazy and cutting himself and screaming. He's in his right mind. This man has been cured. What a joyous day this is. What does Mark say their response was? And they were afraid. Just like the disciples the night before. Why do you think they were afraid? Because these people knew very well that there was nothing natural and there was nothing human that could have brought about this change. There was something much larger at work here. and They were right. But unfortunately, their fear led them in the wrong direction. I think they were right to be afraid. But they should have been able to see the goodness and wish to stay with Jesus longer. We'll give the disciples this. Jesus questioned their fear and their doubt. But you know they stayed in the boat. As afraid as they were during the storm. As afraid as they were after it. They stayed with Jesus. These people were afraid. And so they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. These people aren't mad. These people aren't running Jesus out of town because he's cost them a great deal of money. These people are terrified at witnessing in just one small measure the power of God. A lot of people are like that today. Just a little bit less dramatically. But God does pose a great threat to your life. In the sense that he threatens what you want. What you desire. Who you may think you are. God brings about change. 
Redemption is not something that's free. It costs the blood of Jesus and it requires our obedience and our humility. And some people are very afraid of losing themselves and belonging to Christ. And so they, as politely as they can, find ways around and essentially ask Jesus to depart. Because they want no part of that. And how sad that is. Think of the blessings these people could have received. Think of the people back in town that didn't get to come out because they were lame. Because they were sick. Because they were ill. That Jesus could have healed. And based on other stories that we see, even when Jesus comes back to this part of the country later in his ministry, is willing to heal. But they don't get that. They don't see, receive that blessing because their fear moves them to have Jesus depart. But this man comes to Jesus and as Jesus is getting back in the boat, notice again, Jesus gives the people what they want. And he's getting in the boat and this man comes to him and begs that he might go with him, but Jesus doesn't let him. And this is another strength. This is the third request in the story. The demons have asked to go into the pigs and Jesus said, sure. The people said, please leave us. And Jesus said, okay. And then this man comes with the only honorable request in this story. Can I go with you? And for the first time, Jesus says no. Of all the questions, this is the one that should get a yes, isn't it? But it's not. God works in ways that often are beyond our comprehension. And sometimes we don't want what we ask for. And sometimes we need to be told no to what we do ask for. You see, Jesus has greater plans for this man. Perhaps because he is a Gentile, Jesus knows that it would not be fit for him to come back and be with Jesus. He travels around Judea, especially in Jerusalem. He may have known the problems that would have brought up. But beyond that, he has a greater mission for this man. And he says, I want you to do something else. I want you to go home. You go to your friends, you go to your family, and you tell them what I've done for you. That's a simple message. You know what that is, though? This is the first time Jesus has asked someone to go out and tell others about him. Jesus has not sent out the 12 yet. He's not sent out the 72. The Great Commission certainly hasn't come. Before all of that, one poor man who had been possessed by a legion of demons is given the first call to go preach the gospel. And it's a simple message. He doesn't tell them to go and convince everybody with incredible logic. To be a master of apologetics. To just dazzle people with his knowledge of the scripture. All those things may be well and good. He says, you just go home and you tell people what I've done. And the man did it. Now, this shows the man's zeal. He didn't just go home and tell a couple of people and call it good. It says that then he went as far as the Decapolis. That's an area of ten cities. And by the way, that was a city or an area that was very receptive to the gospel years after this event. An area filled with people that weren't all Jewish. A place that was very worldly in many respects. Was very receptive to the gospel. That's where Saul was heading when he was going to persecute the church because the church had found a very strong foothold in Damascus, one of the cities of the Decapolis. Why do you think it was such a successful area? Perhaps because just a few years before, a man had just done what Jesus told him to do. And he just told people about what the Lord had done. And that opened up the hearts and minds of many people. Evangelism doesn't have to be hard. Just go home. Go to your family, go to your friends, go to those that you can. And tell them what the Lord has done. I'm not talking about some pers personal witnessing. I'm telling, talking about telling people what Jesus has done. 
As simple as that. Of his love, his mercy, of his sacrifice. And let the gospel work upon their hearts. Well, the disciples have witnessed this. And they've seen Jesus now overcome not only the storms of nature, but they've now seen him overcome the enemy of the supernatural. They've seen him overcome a little army of demons. But Jesus' power is still just beginning to be on display. Jesus decides to give the people their wish, and they get back in the boat. They've only been there for perhaps hours at most. And now they've got to get back in the boat and go back across the sea, and so they do. And when they get there, we pick up in the next story. In verse 21 of Mark chapter 5, it says, When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under the physicians. And it's been all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even, the, even his garments... I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace." And be healed of your disease. So Jesus gets back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The day before, if this is a fully, and I think it is, just a chronological happening here. The day before, Jesus had been here teaching the crowds and parables. And by the time he comes back, people are wondering where he is. And when they see Jesus returning, the crowds begin to gather around him. It's like you can imagine in many of the other times that we hear about Jesus. They want to hear him. They want to see some miracles. The crowds are pressing. And while he's there, someone comes, a man who's a leader, a man who's a ruler of the synagogue there in Capernaum. And this man has a very dire situation. He has a little girl who we're later told, or Luke's account, I believe, tells us that she was 12 years old. Or Mark's tells us in verse 42. He has a 12-year-old little girl. And we don't know what had happened to this little girl. We don't know what disease or sickness she had. But she was dying. I'm sure all of us here who are parents can only imagine the pain and the fear that must exist for a parent who sees their little child dying. But this man has hope because Jesus is back. And I don't know what Jairus' attitude had been towards Jesus before. He was one of the rulers of the synagogue and the leaders of the Israelites usually were at odds with Jesus. I don't know if he had been or not. But this day, he knows that Jesus is his only hope. And so he and some others come and they find Jesus and beg Jesus. In fact, this man who, again, not knowing what he's behaved like before in front of Jesus, this time throws himself down at the feet of Jesus. Much like that man who had been demon-possessed on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But he implores him. He begs him. My little daughter is at the point of death. Lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus says, okay. Let's go. 
And so they get up and they start hustling off down the road to go to Jairus' house. And you can just imagine the, the buzz as the murmur sprinkles through the crowd. And people are hearing, what's going on? What happened? Who was that? Well, that was Jairus. His daughter's dying. And he wants Jesus to heal her. And Jesus is going. And they're thinking, we're going to get to see another great miracle. And so people are packing in on this crowd. And they're crowding around Jesus. And in the middle of this crowd, and of course Kevin talked about this some, and he did a masterful job, so I'm not going to retell all of it. But in the middle of this crowd is a woman who's been suffering for a long time. In fact, for 12 years. For all those years that Jairus and his wife have been enjoying the joy of that little girl, this woman has been suffering from a disease that she cannot cure. She has some type of discharge of blood. We don't know. Commentators try and speculate what it may have been. We don't have to know. Don't need to know. What we can know is it would have been probably a painful disease. It probably or it certainly would have been a disease that was a humiliating disease. Because under the law of Moses, there's passages in Leviticus that talk about these things. And this woman would have been considered unclean. And since this was a perpetual situation... This woman was always unclean. This woman could not go close to the temple grounds. This woman could not really be around people. This woman would not be able to be around her family. She wouldn't be able to come into contact with people. This woman, if she were to run into a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a ruler of the synagogue like a man like Jairus, probably would have been shunned away and pushed away if they even had a clue about what her condition was. She spent a great deal of time seeking help between Matthew and Mark and Luke. We learned that she'd gone and she'd seen all sorts of physicians. In fact, she had spent all the money that she had. She'd lost everything. But instead of finding any type of peace and any type of uh, cure, she's not grown better, but she's grown worse. But she has the same hope as Jairus does. Jesus is here. But she wouldn't presume to go straight up to Jesus like Jairus was able to. Surely this rabbi, this teacher, wouldn't listen to her, a woman. That's the attitude that she's gotten from all the other Jewish leaders that she's known and seen. She can't possibly go and ask Jesus to take care of this for her. But she believes, and it's kind of a superstitious belief in a way. I don't know how she came to this. But she's seen enough that she thinks he's so powerful that if I could even just barely touch his garment, that might be enough to make me whole. And so this woman weasels her way through the crowd. By the way, it's a dangerous thing for her because if everybody around her finds out this is an unclean woman bumping up against them and shouldering against them, she's going to be in big trouble. But she finally gets close enough and she's able to just reach a hand out and touch the fringe of Jesus' garment. And immediately, Mark says, this issue of blood is dried up. She could feel the change as quickly as the sea had calmed when Jesus rebuked it. This woman's disease is healed. She hasn't had to pay a dime. She doesn't have to wait for a long time for things to get better. She's healed immediately. And no doubt her plan was to receive that healing and slink back into the crowd. Surely Jesus would just keep going. And she could just kind of sink into anonymity and get back to living her life. But Jesus stops that procession right there and right then. It says that he could tell power went out from him. That's kind of a strange passage. Some people think that Jesus didn't know who it was. I believe Jesus knew exactly what was happening. 
I believe he knew exactly when the lady was going to touch him. He was the one who granted her healing. And he knew who it was when he asked the question. But Jesus does everything he does for a purpose. And so he stops the procession. And he says, who touched me? And the disciples who have been in stunned silence all night and all morning and all the day back to, to Capernaum and all the way that this is happening, all they can say is, what do you mean? There's people literally everywhere. I mean, people are pressed. Everyone has touched you. What do you mean who touched you? How can you ask that question? And Jesus begins looking at the crowd. I can just see him making eye contact with different people. And the woman can't very well run away now, can she? That would clearly show that she's the guilty party if she runs. And so she's just sitting there. And as Jesus gazes around that crowd, I just see those eyes locking on this woman. And what does she do? She comes before him. It says, knowing what happened to her in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. You notice the theme popping up again? Here's that fear. But notice how this woman responds to her fear. She's afraid of Jesus. She's probably afraid she's done something she shouldn't. She might be afraid he's going to revoke this blessing. But she doesn't run. She doesn't doubt. She doesn't begin to beg Jesus to leave her. This woman just simply bears her soul. And she tells Jesus everything. Now this is another one of those situations. Jesus requires some pretty hard things sometimes. Do you think it was easy for that woman in the middle of this crowd to all of a sudden be on the spotlight? And to have to confess before all these dozens of people. I've been suffering from this terrible disease. And you can kind of imagine as people are listening and she says this, they just kind of step back from this unclean woman. And the shame that she's feeling as she gives her account. But she explains also how she believed that she could come and if she just touched the garment that she would be healed. And then she says, and that's exactly what happened by the way. When I came and I touched your garment, I immediately felt my issue resolved. I felt the healing and I'm better now. Now you want to talk about an impressive story. That had to be pretty amazing for all those people sitting there. Remember Jairus has asked Jesus come and lay your hands on her. Jesus doesn't even have to do that. You brush by and you touch his garment. And this is healed. Jesus is able to overcome sickness in a way that nobody else can comprehend. In a way that no earthly doctor can possibly hope to. And Jesus offers that healing. And Jesus says to her in verse 34. Daughter your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. As Marth Matthews account I believe tells us. As Kevin talked about. This is one of those phrase, times when Jesus said be of good cheer. Be encouraged. Jesus had some wonderful words of encouragement for this woman whose fear moved her to tell the truth and confess the truth before Jesus. And her faith earned her a great reward. But there's something interesting there in verse 34. Notice that Jesus, what Jesus calls this woman. He says, daughter, as far as I can tell, I've looked this up a couple of times. There is not another time where Jesus calls a woman daughter in all of the Gospels. Why this time? Why would Jesus choose to call this woman a daughter? 
at this point. Well, remember, we've kind of gotten sidetracked by this woman because where are we actually supposed to be going? There's someone else in this crowd right now, and it's the man who originally came to Jesus. You can just imagine being Jairus, and your little girl's dying. And all of a sudden, there's this commotion that stirs up, and Jesus stops. You've just finally grasped some hope that your little girl's going to make it because Jesus is on the way, but you've got to get there. But now it all stops. And you've got to listen to Jesus, try and find out who it is. And then you see this woman come forward. And it's this woman who's had this disease who shouldn't be in the crowd. And she's had this for 12 years. And I can't imagine, but think that as she talks about the number 12, he thinks about his 12-year-old little girl. And then Jesus, or, or maybe Jairus is all caught up in the story. I, I doubt it, but perhaps. But I'm sure that when Jesus said, daughter, go your way, Jairus is thinking, I've got a daughter. And she needs you, and she needs you now. And Jesus is getting ready to go back to marching on to Jairus' house, but some terrible news comes. And we read through the rest of the chapter, While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered it, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. So after this disruption, Jesus is perhaps getting, Jairus is hoping that Jesus is about to wrap this up. And as Jesus is finishing up what he's saying to this woman, some servants come from Jairus' house. And you have to know, he knew that couldn't be good to see these men here. And they have the news that he's dreading to hear. They say, Jairus, it's too late. She's dead. Your little girl has died. Out of respect for Jesus, they recognize that even in the midst of this heartbreak, Jesus is a busy man. There's a lot of people that need his attention and want his time. He has a mission that he's about. And so they say, don't trouble him any further. I was kind of him to want to come and try and help all he could. But there's no hope now. Let him go on his way. And why don't you come back home. And we'll start the grieving process. And Jesus is kind of sitting back here. As these men are talking. And he overhears them. And hears what they're saying. As they're being polite. And they're being kind. And they're saying the best things that they can. Like you and I have all probably had to do. Trying to think of what in the world can we say. In this difficult situation. And nothing we say really comes out right. And Jesus listens to them for a minute. And then he comes up to Jairus. And he says Jairus. The exact thing he asked his disciples about. He said don't be afraid. Just believe. Well, that's a beautiful little sentence. But I've got to wonder what in the world does it mean for Jairus? What would you do if you just found out your little kid. Your little boy. Your little girl died. And someone came up to you and they said. Don't be afraid. Just believe. If you're like me. You'd probably want to knock them in the teeth. For saying something like that at that moment. What does Jesus mean? Jesus is challenging this man a great deal. 
He knows the fear and the anger and the anguish that's in this man's heart right now. But he's saying, you don't let that win. You don't let that control you. This man had asked Jesus to his house. The question was, was he going to let Jesus keep coming? Was he going to stick by Jesus and stay faithful to Jesus and believe in Jesus, even in the midst of the impossible? Yes, Jesus had proven that he could heal these diseases. But what's Jesus supposed to do with a dead person? Jesus challenges Jairus. He says, don't give in to fear. Be faithful. Believe. That had to kind of smart for the disciples. I can't help but they're thinking about the question hours earlier when Jesus looked at them and said, why are you so afraid? Do you not have faith? Now they're encouraging Jairus to do what they had not. And so they follow. Now from this point, Jesus leaves the crowds behind him. And he only takes three disciples with him. He takes Peter and James and John. There's all sorts of reasons we might come up with. I don't know why he, this inner circle was allowed to go. I think some of it was probably the privacy. Jesus, while he's going to take care of this situation in a powerful way, he's also sensitive to these people. And he's not going to bring a crowd of dozens into this intimate moment with this family. So he picks out these three, maybe because they're his inner circle, maybe because they need to witness what's going to happen as much as anybody else. But he takes them in, and when he gets to the house, there's this commotion. Sometimes what you had was these professional mourners that would come, especially someone like Jairus, who's a ruler. They'd come, and they would professionally mourn to help you feel sorry and to help you grieve. And there's all these people that have gathered. Some of them may be these professional mourners. Maybe there's a lot of friends and family. Jairus is a prominent man. Surely he has many connections. And people are there sharing in the grief. But when Jesus comes, he asks, why are you making a commotion and weeping? Here's another one of those hard questions. Can you imagine if some guy walked in? Imagine even the preacher. Imagine your loved one passes away. And not just a loved one, not, not an elderly grandparent whose time you knew. Imagine one of your children died. And you call me. As the preacher and you want me to come over. And I come over and I walk in and I look around to the family and say, well, what are you all crying about? Why all the long faces? What's this about? That wouldn't feel very good, would it? Jesus is challenging these people. He knows what's about to happen. And he says, why all this commotion? He leads with the difficult part and then he gives a message of hope. He says, don't worry, the child's not dead, she's sleeping. I think Jesus meant that positively. He wasn't meaning she's just asleep. He means that to him and to his power, it's as though she was. This is a message of hope. And how do the people respond? They laugh at him. These people who were so sincere and crying a moment before are now mocking Jesus. He had just given them positive news. He was giving them a glimmer of hope. Challenging, yes, but Jesus provides hope through the greatest of challenges. And yet they mocked him. And so Jesus just says, it's time for them to get out. Now, I have to believe that Jesus is leaving this up to Jairus and his wife. Jesus isn't going to force Jairus and his wife into anything. And so imagine when Jesus basically tells Jairus, why don't you have all these people leave? And you're stuck and you're Jairus. And here's your friends and your family and these people that came to show their support for you. Or there's this Jesus who's saying some strange things. Who are you going to ask to leave? 
And Jairus and his wife do something incredible. They turn to all their friends and their family and their close ones. And they say get out of the house. And those people probably bewildered and wondering and murmuring. They file out. And then Jesus says take me up to the little girl's room. And they take her up there. This is the first time Jairus has seen her since he left. When he saw her breathing perhaps laboredly um, as she was dying. And now he gazes upon the dead body of his precious little girl. And Jesus goes over there and says, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai. This is one of only a few places where in scriptures it's remarked exactly what Jesus said. Even the writers, the gospel writers sometimes, the phrases that Jesus said apparently stuck so hard that they remembered them. And they wrote them down exactly as he said them and then translated them for us. And as we read that, we think, ooh, that sounds mysterious. Talitha Kumai, what does that mean? Mark translates it for us. It's very simple. It's a phrase that had been said who knows how many times in this little girl's life. Her mom had said it. Her dad had said it. It just means little girl, wake up. That's all it means. It's nothing fancy. It's nothing mysterious. It's nothing enigmatic. It's something, again, those parents had said dozens and dozens of times in this little girl's life. But there's a difference now. You see, there came a point when these parents, it meant nothing for them to say that. You can just imagine this woman as she saw the life leave her daughter's body. And perhaps grasping her, she was begging her little daughter to wake up. But she wouldn't. But Jairus had made the right decision. He had brought Jesus to his home. There's a point when I give this lesson in longer forms that I like to make and I'll try and make it hastily right now because we do have so many children in this congregation. We are doing our best, I hope, to raise our children to love the Lord. But there's coming a day, they're innocent and they're pure right now. There's coming a day, if they live long enough, that every one of these little children here will sin. And they will be lost in the sight of God. And there will be nothing that you or I will be able to do to wash that sin away. There will be no prayer we can pray, no action we can take, no sacrifice we can make to make them whole in the sight of God again. And at that point, what will make all the difference is if we've brought Jesus to them. And pray that they will accept Jesus as their king at that time. And as their redeemer. To give them new life. Because he can do what we cannot. And just so it is here. Jesus leans down and he takes this little girl by the hand. By the way, touching a dead body under the law makes one unclean. And yet in a picture of what Jesus would do at the cross when he became sin for us. It does not make him unclean. Instead, he imparts cleanness. And the death doesn't touch him. Instead, he gives life. And he says, little girl, wake up. And the soul comes rushing back into that little girl's body. And her eyes fly open. And she gets up. And I can't even begin to imagine the joy of that mother and that father. And I can't imagine the amazement in Peter and James and John as they're watching this. And they've probably got to be at the edge of exhaustion by now with everything that they've witnessed. 
And that's where I really want to end, is thinking about what they and the other disciples who would get to know about this have witnessed. And come back to the disciples. These disciples were asked a difficult question. Why are you afraid? How is it that you still have no faith? And you read sometimes that it seems like Jesus was frustrated with these men. And there were times that he was. But I want you to fast forward a few years. Jesus has died, but he's resurrected. And Jesus has ascended back into the Father. And he's given them an incredible challenge. He said, all right, my kingdom has come. And now it's your job to conquer the world. You're going to go out and you make disciples of all nations. We're fishermen. We're tax collectors. The world's against us. Absolutely. But those are the marching orders. You know what those men did? They did it. Those men, who if they wouldn't have become apostles, would have become men who would have been lost to the pages of history. They did exactly what they were accused of, what Paul would later be accused of over at Ephesus. They turned the world upside down with the gospel. And you know what they faced as they did? They faced storms. They faced satanic power. They faced sickness. And they faced death. But they never gave in. Why do you think that was? Not just because of Mark chapters 4 and 5. Because of all of their time with Jesus. But even if you boiled it down to just those couple of days. Think of the strength. When they faced sickness. Or when they face storms, literal storms or metaphorical storms, do you think that they were afraid? I bet they were sometimes. But do you think they were able to be faithful through that storm? Absolutely. Why? Because they remembered they're following the one who's the master of the storms. Do you think they faced demonic problems? They faced literal demonic possession that they had to battle against. In addition to all the other forces of evil. I want to tell you something. We might not have to face demonic possession today. But evil exists. And we see it in the world around us. And we're going to have to confront it from time to time. And it's frightening when you really come up against something that's truly evil. But are we going to be afraid and give in? Or are we going to stand for the truth when evil seeks to overcome? The disciples could overcome evil. What was a demon-possessed person going to do? What was all the evil influence in the world going to do against them? Their master's the one who could cast out a weeping and bemoaning legion of demons. They were on the winning side. They faced sickness. They had human bodies. They faced the problems of this world. The pains and the discomforts that came along with it. Do you think that slowed them down? No. Why? Because they served the one whose power was so great that he could heal by someone just touching the fringe of his garment. And all of them according to history that we can tell except for John himself. Died a martyr's death. Were put to death sometimes in excruciating ways. Because they preached the gospel and they didn't stop. Why? Because Jesus has power over death. And because Jesus can bring life to those who have died. And promises to bring life to those who are faithful even until death and unto death. So whatever the world had to throw at them, it really didn't matter. They weren't going to be afraid. They were going to be faithful because they served Jesus. And here's the greatest part. 
That strength that they had. We read about Peter and John and the disciples and all that they did. Their strength is our strength. We aren't inspired by the Holy Spirit in the way they were true. We have the entire written word of God. We have all the blessings that give us, are given to us. And while we may not have been able to be on that boat or see Jairus' little girl wake up, we get to read about it. and We get to know about it. We can imagine these things in our mind. And we have the same source of strength that they did. And so as you and I face storms and as we face evil and as we face sickness, all of us here have faced that and will face that. And as we face death, guess what? It doesn't matter. And I don't say that lightly. I mean it. Those things cannot stop us. And they can't stop the gospel. If we'll choose to listen to Jesus. And overcome our fears. And be faithful. And know that one day we'll get to hear those word, words. I like to imagine that might be the way that it is that we wake up in heaven. We hear Jesus saying, wake up. My child, arise. And we'll get to enjoy eternal life. With our Savior forevermore. What's going to stop us from that? What are we going to let stop us from that? I hope that the sermon this morning, this evening, encourage us to let nothing stop us from that. But instead give all of our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength. To faithfully serving King Jesus and His kingdom. Until that time comes when we finally get to go home. And enjoy the other side and the reward that Jesus promises the faithful. Well, the sermon's yours. I hope that that's encouraging. I hope that it gives you some things to think about from what we've talked about today. I hope you'll reread these passages and meditate on them throughout this week. And I hope that it gives you strength. Perhaps there's somebody here who's not a Christian. You're not following Jesus and you need to. We hope that you'll make the choice to begin following Him today. If you believe in Him and you're ready to trust in Him, then you need to repent of your sins. You need to confess Him as the Son of God and you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins. Or if you're a Christian and you've done that and you've let sin back into your life, it's time to change. It's time to return. And if you want the prayers of the church, we'll be happy to pray with you and to pray for you. So if there be one in need, we'd invite you to come while we stand and while we sing.